Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. WNYC Studios. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. James Monroe, writing about the U.S. in the 1820s, declared. There is no object which, as a people, we can desire, which we do not possess, or which is not within our reach. That sentiment has driven centuries of history and that peculiar notion we call American exceptionalism. That seemingly limitless reach, that unappeasable desire, is said to have its roots in America's relationship with the frontier. Those of us alive today feel it mostly metaphorically. John F. Kennedy in 1960. And we stand today on the edge of a new frontier. The frontier of the 1960s. The frontier of unknown opportunities and perils. The frontier of unfilled hopes and unfilled threats. Ronald Reagan in 1982. As we hold to this new path, you and your forebears, as Malcolm said, tamed a wild frontier. And believe it or not, you did it without an area redevelopment program or urban renewal. George W. Bush promising to, quote, extend the frontiers of freedom in the war on terror. The story of America is the story of expanding liberty, an ever-widening circle, constantly growing to reach further and include more. Endless possibility, but also endless consumption, endless military might. Presidents have promised boundless opportunity by pushing our boundaries ever outward, whatever the cost. But in his new book, The End of the Myth, From the Frontier to the Border Wall in the Mind of America, historian Greg Grandin says that the movement outward has come to a screeching halt. We're going to build the wall. We have no choice. We have no choice. Build that wall. Build that wall. Build that wall. But first, Grandin takes us back to the underpinnings of the frontier ideology. Ceaseless expansion. That there is no problem caused by expansion that can't be solved by more expansion. In the next few weeks, we'll be unpacking the national narrative of expansion and exceptionalism. Next week, we'll expand our inquiry overseas, but this week, we've enlisted Greg Grandin as our transcontinental guide. Thomas Jefferson's first political tract a couple of years before drafting the Declaration of Independence held out that the right to pick up and move, to escape tyranny, uh, 
wasn't just a natural right. It was the condition of all other natural rights. And Jefferson laid out a moral history in which Saxon free men in what is now Germany, when feudalism began to take hold, picked up and moved over to the British Isles. And then when the layers of social life began to weigh heavy on Saxons and on the British Islands, then they just moved over to the Americas. His argument is that movement allows all other rights to take place. And the founders acknowledged always that there would be tension between the haves and the have-nots. And James Madison's solution would be to extend the sphere, meaning territory. The founders were fairly clear that a concentration of wealth would cause a problem to Republican virtue. One solution that was put forward by Jefferson was to redistribute property every generation so it didn't build up. Take it from people? He gave up that idea pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> and and the solution that presented itself was fairly obvious, to extend the sphere, as, as Madison put it. He believed that citizens spread over a wide territory would be less likely to join, quote, common interest or passion, or to discover their own strength and to act in unison with each other. This is pretty frank stuff. Yeah. Expansion was held out as the breaker of every paradox, the allayer of every fear. So there was a metaphor for what expansion did, for its use as a remedy. It was called the safety valve to relieve the pressure. The pressure of what? Well, one was a class pressure, the increasing number of wage laborers, immigrants that were coming into the country. How do you prevent a, a labor party from forming, for instance, that might challenge the sacrosanct right of private property? And the second problem the safety valve was thought to solve was the question of slavery. You quote the editor of the Western Monthly Review, Timothy Flint. He proposed America by... Mexican territory because it would serve as the proper escape valve from the danger of too great an accumulation of blacks in the slave states, thinning the population by diffusing it over great surfaces. And when it comes to class, you have uh, the Massachusetts Congressman Caleb Cushing in 1839 who called the West the great safety valve of our population. One of the dangers that somebody like Cushing identified was that as the vote was extended to unpropertied white men, to working class, illiterate white men, the fear was that they would use that vote to vote in socialism, to vote in a labor party. So what to do? Their answer was to use the expansion West, the distribution of public land in the West, as a way of diffusing and dispersing concentrated social demands. It seems that Cushing was also a bit of a libertarian because he hoped that the westward movement would also keep the government occupied. Well, exactly, because that's the second problem, right? That the problem of concentrated wealth and the problem of social movements contesting that concentrated wealth is that you wind up having the growth of government trying to solve the problem, either becoming overly repressive in clamping down on the demands or overly generous in distributing property. And either of those solutions were anathema to somebody like Cushing. So what's the solution? You go west. To explain how that frontier mentality set the U.S. on its ruggedly individualist trajectory, Grandin suggests we pause at 1848 
Across Europe, it was a year of revolution. Workers were rising up in Paris, in Berlin, in Milan, where the La Scala Opera House was closed during a riot, delaying the opening of this work, Mercandente's opera, The Saracen Slave. The poor were waging war on the rich, waging war upward. It was like a wildfire, and, and basically it thrust the class question, the question of economics, into the political sphere. When you have the rise of industrial factories, when you have the spread of economic immiseration, from that moment there emerges labor parties, an ethic of social democracy, the beginning of social rights, not just political rights, not just the right to property or the right to assemble, or the right to have free speech, but the right to health care, the right to education, rights that take a more activist government to form. In some ways, that's the inflection point, and that's what the United States does not develop. Its liberal tradition does not socialize. It does not move from embracing political rights and individual rights to expanding the palette to include the right to education, the right to health care. And 1848 is an interesting turning point. They don't have a revolution. What they have is a racist war against Mexico. The end of the 19th century was a period of political theories. The dominant figure responsible for turning the frontier from a mappable place into an abstract idea is Frederick Jackson Turner at the 1893 Chicago World's Fair. Up until that point, historians tended to argue what they called the germ theory of history. By that, they didn't actually mean bacteria, but they meant that everything that was good about American Anglo-Saxon culture came wholesale from Europe. Germ meaning germinate. The seed. That basically the Puritans created nothing. Their institutions were already perfected from Europe. Turner, born in Wisconsin, Midwestern, he turns that on its head. He says that what was good and unique and dynamic about America was born in America. It was born on the frontier. And he identified a number of particular traits that he felt were exceptional to the United States. One was individualism, crude intelligence that was practical, that was innovative, that was resilient. This becomes in some ways the foundation of an organic American-born Americanism. And as you wrote, he glosses over the small matter of the series of Indian wars and the slavery question. The frontiersman is virtuous. There's no reference to the high price paid by some for the myth of boundless American freedom. Absolutely. The frontier theory was implicitly and at times explicitly racist. But it's important to note that um, it didn't elevate racism as a motor of history. The way the germ theory The way did. that somebody like Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt was also an historian. For him, war and the domination of Native Americans was the engine of history. It was from this violent, primal confrontation with base nature in, in the form either of Native Americans or of the natural world that creates civilization. There's none of that in Turner. Turner barely mentions war. Nothing as brutal that is on every page of Theodore Roosevelt. It isn't slaughter it isn't that slaughter. elevates one. And this is important because America is about to launch itself 
into the Pacific, into the world. And if it has claims to universalism, that kind of out-and-out out racism of the Saxon germ theory or of Theodore Roosevelt's war against nature is not a particularly useful way to think of how to organize the world. So Turner becomes an important way in which racism becomes sidelined. And the implication of his theory is that as the U.S. moves across the frontier, racism is left behind as a residue. The frontier thesis, according to Turner, was a way to explain the formation of our national psyche through a particular sequence of events. First, settlers arrived in the wilderness. Then, enterprising families follow after to work the land. Think Little House on the Prairie. We crossed into Kansas four days ago. What are you looking for? We had no future where we were. It was a hand-to-mouth existence at best. I want more than that for you and the children. 160 acres free and clear from the government to plant and harvest my own crops, to be owing to no man. I want that. Eventually, those families assemble into communities, and then the communities coalesce to form civil society. And then, as Turner put it, as by magic, markets emerge. Yeah, I need a plow and seed, not for 100 acres. Well, you've come to the right man. I sell only the best. Finally, after everything is created and set in motion, the state arrives. And the state's only legitimate function is to protect virtue, not to create virtue mm-hmm. in the form of social rights. But it was a lie. And he <laughs> knew lie. it. It was a lie and he knew it. In one of the articles that he was reading where he, he got a lot of his ideas, he, he has a little notation that says government came before. Because the fact is that you don't have any of these things without government. You don't remove Native Americans off the land move them west. You don't create the infrastructure needed to create markets without a strong state. The west had always been the terrain of large-scale corporations or federal infrastructure projects that Mm -hmm. preceded the ideal of virtuous civil society mixed with nature. The premise that the state doesn't show up till the end gave ballast to the idea that it had no responsibility to create social or economic rights. These things offered by the state would be perverse or unvirtuous? This is a foundational premise of the ideal of a minimal state, of the ideal of individual rights being the only legitimate rights. They want to replace individual rights with total government domination. We know jobs are not created by government and jobs are created by free markets. Thomas Jefferson said government that governs least governs best. The denial of the state and government action and federal action in creating this world allows this fiction to take root and to flower. I still don't get it. They're saying that it is literally unvirtuous to offer health care or education or welfare. Why? Well, it would entail an intrusion in the realm of economics. And Meaning you'd have to tax people to pay for it. You'd have to tax people to pay for it. You have to regulate the economy. Mm-hmm. I mean, what we call libertarianism in this country has deep roots. By the 1890s, the frontier had come to an end. The census officially declared there was no more open land in the West. Yet, the U.S. kept expanding to Puerto Rico, to Hawaii, to the Philippines. But more on that next week. Let's just observe that in discussing expansion post-1898, President Woodrow Wilson said, quote, We made new frontiers for ourselves beyond the seas. 
Turner was a friend of Wilson and went along with pretty much everything Wilson did. He was such a racist. He was just (laughs) as racist as Teddy Roosevelt. Yes, yes. The frontier thesis moves from an historical theory to an ideology. It moves from an explanation of how and why something has happened to an argument for why something should happen. The frontier is understood not just as a line to stop at, but a line to cross over. There's not one president that doesn't use the frontier thesis to justify American power in the world. But in some precincts, Turner's thesis was turned against itself. In 1912, Walter Weil, the future founding editor of The New Republic, wrote a piece describing the individualism championed by Turner as a curse. The westward march of the pioneer gave to Americans a psychological twist which was to hinder the development of a socialized democracy. The open continent intoxicated the American. It gave him an enlarged view of self. It dwarfed the common spirit. It made the American mind a little sovereignty of its own, acknowledging no allegiances and but few obligations. It created an individualism, self-confident, short-sighted, lawless, doomed in the end to defeat itself, as the boundless opportunism which gave it birth became at last circumscribed. Right? It's right there in that Walter Weil line that it inhibited a socialized democracy. The frontier is still being used to explain America, but now they're explaining all the things that are bad about America, all the things that are preventing America from developing a government that has the capacity to respond to mounting social problems. Weil used the word slum almost as much as Turner used the word frontier, right? There was a sense that political inequality, all the problems that come with industrialization, all the problems that come with mass migration, all of the problems that come with the rise of cities and concentrated populations, that the federal government was completely incapable of addressing those problems. So, after the Great Depression was met with a bootless response from Herbert Hoover, Franklin Roosevelt endorsed the frontier theory as an explanation of the nation's past, and then, in his 1932 presidential campaign, declared it defunct. So, in this famous Commonwealth Club speech in San Francisco during the presidential campaign, he spent some time laying out the Turner thesis and trying to explain the development of American capitalism and and all of the good things that came from that. And then with just one sentence, he would just say, but those days are gone. In 1938, on the third anniversary of the signing of the Social Security Act, he brought it up again. And because it has become increasingly difficult for individuals to build their own security single-handed. Government must now step in and help them lay the foundation stones. Just as government in the past has helped lay the foundation of business and industry. Leveraging the power of the state to cure what ails its people? Now that was virgin territory. There is still today a frontier that remains unconquered. An America unreclaimed. This is the great the nationwide frontier of insecurity, of human want and human fear. This is the frontier, the America, 
that we have set ourselves to reclaim. Roosevelt's Brain Trust wove Turner's thesis into all facets of the New Deal, including efforts to cope with the Dust Bowl, brought on by unsustainable frontier farming. A kind of strip mining of the soil that happened as a result of expansion, of just like moving on and moving on and moving on. And what these New Dealers did was they basically just affixed the word social to all these ternarian categories. So instead of having democracy, now you had social democracy. Instead of having education, you had social education. Instead of having civilization, you had a social civilization. Social justice through social action. And he was also good at using the Turner thesis to explain the social relations of existence. He has one phrase, this man-made world of ours. Again, these turns of phrases that capture a whole worldview, a new political ethic, a new political culture that was laying the groundwork for the closest the United States came to some kind of social democracy. Isn't it weird how the argument over the frontier theory just keeps recurring and recurring? Martin Luther King... Yeah. Uh, here he is in his The Summer of Our Discontent speech in 1964. We are a nation that worships the frontier tradition, and our heroes are those who champion justice through violent retaliation against injustice. It is not simple to adopt the credo that moral force has as much strength and virtue as a capacity to return a physical blow. That to refrain from hitting back requires more will and bravery than the automatic reflexes of defense. Yeah, and, and it speaks to the deeper level in which King presented his nonviolence, not just as a tactic, but really as a counter value to the whole of American history. King saw something deeply pathological in the myth of the West in what he called rugged individualism for the many and the poor, but socialism for the rich in the form of subsidies and, and write-offs. And if somebody like Turner and other moral philosophers believed that individualism and the legitimacy of self-government had to do with your ability to regulate yourself, use your virtues to control your emotions, King transferred that more into the social realm. And he talked about African-Americans who move through the social wilderness of racism and were able to not give in to anger and not give in to justifiable rage. And that was a higher claim to self-governance. The Vietnam War, what Grandin calls the first frontier war we lost, was rife with frontier imagery. Soldiers gave names like Crazy Horse and Sam Houston to their air and ground operations and reportedly cut off the ears of dead Vietnamese. The historian Richard Drinnen noted that it was, quote, as if cowboys and Indians were the only game the American invaders knew. In 1970, the Mexican author Octavio Paz described the U.S. as a, quote, giant which is walking faster and faster along a thinner and thinner line. With the Vietnam War, Grandin says, the U.S. hit its limit. It was around this time that the idea of border walls started to loom larger in the public's imagination, and conflict and vigilantism on the border became even more acute. 
1977, the Ku Klux Klan, led by David Duke, set up a border watch that was much covered by the press and supported by patrol agents. The association with that lost frontier war in Indochina went beyond the symbolic. These sheet metal landing pads that were used to land helicopters and cargo planes in Vietnam, they were brought over and used as, as some of the first physical structures along the border. And I was struck when you wrote that some of the fencing was repurposed from uh, the Crystal City Japanese-American internment camp. Right. So you see the wall taking shape from all of these different sediments and moments of U.S. racial history, the internments of Japanese in 1948, some of the first fencing when that internment camp in Crystal City was disassembled, the chain length and the posts were then used on the southern border. If the country's lived past the end of its myth the frontier myth. What replaces it? The border wall. The idea that the world's resources are not limitless. Not everybody could sit at the table. That the United States needs to batten down and needs to turn inward. It's going to be only America first. America first. The unique ability to constantly deflect outward, to flee forward, to divert social contradictions and class conflict and rate outward, to roll over the trauma from the last war into the next war, to use the promise of growth to organize domestic politics, to say whatever problems we have now will be solved in the future through more expansion. Now that that is no longer an option, the promise of unlimited growth has come crashing down in terms of the exhaustion of the economic model, the exhaustion of the military model, and, and climate change. Tell me again why you wrote this book. I was trying to figure out a way to get beyond what had seemed to be a simplistic opposition in talking about Trump. Trump was either presented as uh, completely unprecedented, an interruption in the United States' long history of proceduralism and pluralism and multilateralism and openness, or if one was more critical of the United States, Trump was presented as the culmination of a brutality that was in, there from the beginning and settler colonial expansion. You know, I think that opposition fails to account for the contingencies of more immediate history, what happened with Iraq, what happened with the changes in the political economy, what happens with climate change and the way that that has scrambled politics and the way politics could be organized. I was trying to present a way to think about Trump historically that didn't fall into one or the other. He's wholly new or he's just the fulfillment of settler colonialism. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brooke, for having me. Greg Grandin is a professor of history at New York University and author of The End of the Myth, From the Frontier to the Border Wall in the Mind of America. That's it for this week's show. On the Media is produced by Alana Casanova 